Good morning and welcome. I'm Pastor Glenn Thomas, one of the pastors here at St. Paul's Lutheran Church in De Pere. We welcome all who are with us today in our gymnasium, and we also welcome our radio audience at KFUO 850 AM and our online worldwide audience at KFUO.org. We will do what we do each Sunday in this class, and that's take a look at the lessons that are assigned from Scripture for the coming Sunday. So today we'll be looking at the lessons assigned for the second Sunday in Lent, February 25. And let's begin with a word of prayer. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Lord God, Heavenly Father, we come before you this day with thanksgiving and praise for all your many blessings to us, but above all, for the blessing of salvation through your Son, Jesus Christ, praising and thanking you for his life and death and resurrection once again, and for the knowledge that our sins are forgiven and we are heirs of everlasting life through him. We thank you also for your life-giving and life-sustaining word and for the opportunity to gather here and study it together. Send your Holy Spirit to be with us that he may equip us and lead us into increasing knowledge and understanding through your word. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, we are going to actually, uh, with the Old Testament lesson today, uh, and with the Gospel lesson for that matter, actually be backtracking a bit chronologically. So uh, I'll point that out as we go. For those here in the gymnasium, there are sheets over on the side that have the Collect and the Scripture readings on them. Let's begin with the Collect, and I'll just say a word or two about it, but uh, the Collect for next Sunday is... O oh God, you see that of ourselves we have no strength. By your mighty power, defend us from all adversities that may happen to the body and from all evil thoughts that may assault and hurt the soul. Through Jesus Christ, your Son, our Lord, who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God now and forever. The collect, I think, applies a little bit more to the gospel reading, which we will get to, and that's the account of Jesus asking the disciples, who do people say that I am? And then uh, Peter giving the, the great answer that he does. And then immediately as Christ begins to say what is going to happen to him in Jerusalem, Peter going from being the, the, the might say, the teacher's favorite with that great answer to Christ saying, get thee behind me, Satan. <laughs> all, in just, all in just a very short amount of time. So uh, you see the, the, um, in the colic both body and spirit being addressed here for us, right? That any adversities that may occur to both the body or the spirit, Christ is going to be talking about what is going to be coming in terms of his own body. And Peter, of course, in spirit, uh, has not in mind the things of God but the things of man. And so I think, again, the collect is more directly connected to the gospel lesson, which is coming up, and we'll get to that. First of all, let's go to our Old Testament lesson for next week, and that's Genesis 17. And we're going to look at uh, verses 1 through 7 and 15 through 16. Again, as is the case sometimes, we have a section that is cut out or is omitted. <clears throat> and as I say, we're going back in time now. Uh, from what we looked at last week. Uh, you'll remember last week we looked at God commanding Abraham to go and offer his son Isaac as a sacrifice. 
And now we're backing up to Genesis 17 when Isaac has not even been born yet. Okay, so just trying to keep this straight chronologically. We're not going in a linear pattern here. We're actually backing up. This is more of a thematic approach. Now, let's take a look, starting at verse 1 of Genesis 17. When Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, I am God Almighty, walk before me and be blameless. So, Abram here has not had his name changed yet to Abraham. He's about to have that name changed. But he is 99 years old at this point. This is, if you back up to the last verse, if you have a Bible, of, of, Gen of uh, Genesis uh, 16, you'll see that 13 years have elapsed now between the birth of Ishmael. And remember, Ishmael was born to Abraham through, not Sarah, but Hagar, Sarah's uh, Egyptian servant. And remember whose idea? We talked about this last week a little bit. Whose idea was that? Sarah's idea. Who ends up getting blamed for it? Abraham. I'll, I'll stop there. <clears throat> Sarah blames Abraham. So it's been 13 years now since Ishmael has been born. This strife has occurred between Hagar and Sarah. And you've got to think to yourself, what is Abraham thinking at this point? Is he ever going to have a son via Sarah? Because remember, God has promised, in, back in Genesis 12, five chapters before our text, that God is going to make of Abraham a great nation, that his descendants will be as many as the stars in the sky or the sand on the seashore. Well, that's been quite a while now. And how is this going to happen? And we've already had one attempt by Sarah <clears throat> to take matters into her own hands. So Abraham's 99, the Lord appeared to him. Uh, we don't know how he appeared to Abram. Uh, was this a dream or a vision? We just don't know. We're not given the precise details. Uh, throughout the Old Testament, God appears to people, and there's a, there's a big name for that. It's called a theophany in the Old Testament. So if you want to impress people, you can tell them later today. We talked about a theophany today in the Old Testament. In the Old Testament. Uh, but, so it might have been a dream. It might have been a vision. We just don't know. He says to him, I am God Almighty. Now, you may, may have heard the Hebrew term for this, El Shaddai. Have any of you heard of that? El Shaddai. In fact, I think there's a song uh, uh, by that name. We don't know this, this word Shaddai in Hebrew. We don't know a lot about it. It's translated Almighty, and that's probably as, as good as anything else. It also is used at times to talk about uh, God's blessing and God's providing. So you could say it's either something like, I am the God Almighty, you know, referring to his power, or I am the God who provides, the God who blesses, that has a little softer, maybe, tone to it. But at any rate, I am El Shaddai, walk before me. Now, he doesn't literally mean start walking, he means that walk before me is just an expression, meaning live your life before me, okay? and be blameless. Now, can Abram be blameless on his own? No. It's another way of saying, right, follow me in faith, exactly what Jesus is going to talk about in the Gospel lesson. 
follow me in faith and thus be blameless. Um, it, remember, Abram believes God and it's counted unto him as righteousness. Coming up in the next chapter. Verse 2, that I may make my covenant between you and may multiply you greatly. Now, what, let's stop right here. What's a covenant? God's going to make a covenant with Abraham. We have covenants today that people make together. What would be a synonym for the word covenant? Anybody know? An agreement? Yeah. Kind of, you might say it's an agreement. There were uh, certainly kings and nations in the Old Testament that made covenants between themselves. But God's covenant with his people is unique in at least one way. Normally, when you have two different groups, parties, making a covenant, each one brings something to the table, right? One says, okay, I'll, I will do this or I won't do this, and the other one says, okay, in light of that, I won't do this or I will do that. In God's covenant with his people, it's different. Do God's people bring anything to the table when it comes to his covenant with us? No. God brings it all. And that's the thing that distinguishes God's covenant. It is strictly a covenant of grace. Undeserved love, undeserved merit given to God's people. There was nothing about Abraham that caused God to choose him other than grace. Again, undeserved love. Okay? And notice there, uh, at the very end, he says, uh, verse 2, I may multiply you greatly. Well, again, Abram's 99 years old at this point, and he's got to be wondering, okay, you've said this before, and a lot of water's gone under the bridge, you know, between that time and now. How is this going to happen? Okay, so starting at verse 3 then, Then Abram fell on his face, and God said to him, Behold, my covenant is with you, and you shall be the father of many nations. Again, how is this going to happen? No longer shall your name be called Abram, but your name shall be Abraham. For I have made you the father of a multitude of nations. Now, it's interesting that God changes his name right here. Abram, if you look down, if you have a study Bible, you'll probably read at the bottom that the word Abram means exalted father or high father. Uh, Abraham means father of many nations. So that's exactly, I'm going to call you Abraham. Uh, I have made you the father of many nations. That's, uh, for example, uh, in, in Bible times, the names often, especially if a person was renamed, would have great significance. When the angel comes and says, you shall call his name Jesus, because what? He will save his people from their sins. The word Jesus meaning Savior, okay? And notice that, um, that uh, God talks here as if he has already done it. Do you notice that? I have made you the father of many nations. God's word is so sure and so able to bring about exactly what he says that God speaks as if it has already been accomplished. Sometimes that is referred to as the prophetic present. In other words, God is speaking as if it has already taken place. Now let me stop here for a moment. 
uh, we may need to go back a bit in terms of custom, but is there any time in our lives where we receive a new name and have a new blessing uh, from God to go along with it? Baptism. Now, uh, i got to say, we got to go back in time in terms of customs. Uh, now, usually, when children are born, they're uh, named right away. Uh, many, most times, many times. Uh, in a hospital, you know, they're named, uh, and that's their name. But when, uh, if we go back in time, and there was a christening, do you know where the term Christian name came from? You were named when? At your baptism, right? And so even today, when we are baptizing a child, uh, whichever one of us pastors is doing the baptism, we will ask the parents, what? How is this child to be named? That's not because we pastors are out to lunch and don't know the name of the child, right? Or you may think we're out to lunch anyway. But uh, it, is, it is going back to that old custom that you were renamed, uh, or, or I shouldn't say renamed, you were named at your baptism. And many times that was done much earlier in time than we do it today. And you were given your Christian name. We hardly use that phrase anymore, right? Uh, your family name and your Christian name. And that's a, a reference to your christening, right? You're being made a Christian at your baptism. So it's kind of interesting. We have that, that custom, as I say, those customs have kind of fallen a bit by the wayside, but that goes back to it. And typically in the scriptures, many times when God gives a new name, it's an indication of something wonderfully new that is going to happen and that God is going to do in that person's life, just as it is with our baptism. Okay? So, father of many nations now he's going to be called because, as God says, I have made you the father of a multitude of nations. I will make you exceedingly fruitful. Huh. At 99 years of age, exceedingly fruitful. And I will make you into nations, and kings shall come from you. Who are uh, at least a couple kings that came down the line from Abraham? David, King David, right? Solomon, so on. Uh, so kings will come from you. Verse 7, and I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you, so it's not just to Abraham, this is not just a, you know, a limited time thing between the two of them, but through all their offspring, throughout their generations, and notice what he adds at the uh, end of verse 7, an everlasting covenant. So a never-ending agreement God is going to have with all of the descendants of Abraham, to be God to you and to your offspring after you. Now let's stop for a moment and think about this. Is God saying here he is only going to have this covenant with and only be God to the biological descendants of Abraham? Is that what God is saying here? Only to them, exclusively to them. You could read it that way, couldn't you? But here's where we as Lutherans have this, this principle of letting Scripture interpret Scripture, right? 
When I have a question, uh, where do I turn first? Not to what I think about something, but is there any other place in the scriptures that this subject is addressed? And if we, we won't turn to it here, but in Galatians 3 verse 7, this is one place that it is articulated, that Paul articulates this in the New Testament, that all who are children of faith are children of Abraham. So it is not limited to a biological descendant of Abraham, but it's all who believe now are children of Abraham. Remember that verse, Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. Now the children of Abraham are not limited to those who are biological. In fact, uh, there are some who are biological descendants of Abraham who do not believe, don't, uh, right? Uh, do, not, do not believe in the Savior, in the Messiah. It is those who by faith are children of Abraham. So who does that include? All of us, right? And all believers. I don't know, we're at uh, sort of uh, one point, we have about seven uh, billion people on the face of the earth right now, isn't that about right? Something like that. And about a third are Christians from what we read. So right now, on the face of the earth, you know, we're talking about uh, 2.2, 2.3, or no, 2.7 or 8, I guess it is, uh, billion Christians who are all children of Abraham. So can you see how this promise from God actually came true already? And that's just who are alive right now on the face of the earth versus all who have gone before us and all who will come after us if Christ doesn't return first. So, you know, you can see this promise coming true. And it would be a mistake to read this as though this promise only applies to the biological descendants of Abraham. Okay? So, going on now, um, and notice there, uh, one other comment at the end of verse 7, that what is the blessing here? That God will be a God, and that's, that's one thing, but to or for you. Is it comforting to you if we only knew that God was the El Shaddai, the all-powerful, almighty God? Does that in itself bring us comfort? Not necessarily, right? Because he could be the El Shaddai, the all-powerful God who is against us, right? It's very important here. He is the God. He says he will be a God to you, or he can translate that for you, okay? On your side, in other words, right? Those two things have to go together, don't they? It's no comfort just to have an almighty, all-powerful God if he's not also a God of love toward us, right? A God of grace and mercy. On the other hand, it's not enough to have a God who loves us and is a God of all uh, mercy and grace, but can't do anything, you know, can't do anything to help us. And fortunately, our God is both. A, a God who is the all-powerful God and a God who is a God of grace toward us. Okay? All right, so going on, verse, uh, we'll finish off here, verses 15 and 16 to finish off the lesson. And God said to Abram, Abraham, oh, I'm sorry, did I? Yeah, we, yeah, I'm sorry, down to verse 15. And God said to Abraham, as for Sarai, your wife, you shall not call her name Sarai, but Sarah. Sarah means princess. And it kind of backs up this whole 
notion of, of Abram, Abraham now being the God of many nations, uh, shall be her name. And now something new is going to come in her life here. See, I will bless her, uh, and that would be, of course, with a son, uh, first of all. And moreover, I will give you a son by her. So Abraham is hearing here that Ishmael is not going to be the, the son of the promise. There's going to be another son born to Sarah, via Sarah. Okay, I will bless her, and she shall become nations. Kings of peoples shall come from her. Okay, So that finishes off that promise to Abraham and Sarah. And we read, we last week, as I said, we kind of jumped ahead and read about the God offering now, or God commanding that Abraham offer this son that they've waited so long for. The son he said he's going to promise her. The son he said he's going to make into this great nation through her. Uh, asked him to sacrifice this same son on Mount Moriah, okay? which is, again, Jerusalem, where the temple is, where Christ was near, where Christ was sacrificed. Okay? Now, let me just stop for a moment. How is it, we've got to remember this, how is it that through the line of Abraham, as God promised back in Genesis 12, that all nations of the earth shall be blessed? How is that? Because who's going to come through? Who's going to be one of the, humanly speaking anyway, one of the descendants of Abraham? Christ is, right, the Savior of the world. And that's the way that through all these offspring of, of Abraham, in particular one of those offspring down the line, is going to be Christ himself. Okay? And all nations of the earth will be blessed as a result. All right? Let me stop there. Any uh, comments, questions? No? All right. Let's, let's jump to the gospel lesson and see now the fulfillment of that promise in Christ. And we're going to look at Mark 8, verses 27 through 38. And this section starts what's called a, a fourth section in the gospel of Mark, where Jesus now kind of goes off with his disciples and there are many times in this next section, they are off by themselves. He's not, uh, even though he's going to talk to a crowd a little bit later on in this lesson, for the most part, he's not amongst the crowds. He's not doing a lot of healing. He's not doing a lot of uh, you know, public appearances, you might say. It's more off with his disciples. And, of course, it's not going to be long after this section where he is going to be going to Jerusalem. That'll be the next section in Mark. And it's almost like he's in a retreat with his disciples here, and he's preparing them, or at least trying to prepare them, for what is going to come. We're going to see in, our, in this gospel lesson, this is the first time that Jesus lets the disciples know that he is going to go to Jerusalem and be killed. He adds a rise again on the third day, but you get the impression they, they didn't, you know, they almost went blank right when they heard that. First time they're going to hear this, okay? All right, so with that, let's go to verse 27 of Mark 8. And Jesus went on with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi. Now let me just stop there for a moment. Caesarea Philippi is the northernmost spot in Galilee that Jesus went 
with his disciples. And he is going to ask them a question here coming up. Uh, who do men say that I am? Well, before Jesus, long before Jesus got there, the city, city of Caesarea Philippi was known as the city of Panis. And there was a Greek god named Pan who was worshipped there. And that worship of the Greek god Pan involved all kinds of, uh, let me just say, uh, immorality, uh, even including, it seems, children, things that would disgust us uh, today. And all of this took place in a beautiful setting. And it's up where, uh, just south of Mount Hermon, and it's right near where the Jordan River has, has its headwaters, begins. And then at the time of Herod the Great, uh, there was a beautiful marble temple built there by Herod, and it was dedicated to the Roman Emperor Caesar. Okay? And they actually would worship, began worshiping the Roman Emperor as if he were a god, a deity. Okay? And uh, also there, when you go there, uh, let me just finish the story, then Philip, Herod the Great's son, named it Caesarea Philippi after himself <laughs> to differentiate it from the Caesarea that was on the water of the Sea of Galilee. So you've got a Caesarea Philippi up north, you've got a Caesarea, it's called Caesarea Maritime today, on the water, okay? This is the one up north. And the other thing about this is, when you go there today, you can sit there and see a huge wall of stone there, and in, those, in that stone, you still have these niches carved into the stone. And each of those niches held a false god back at that time. So people could come in this beautiful setting and be there and pray to as many of those false gods as they wanted to, or as few as they wanted to, okay? So now, doesn't that question of Jesus take on more significance? They're in that region where all of these false gods are being worshipped, where the Roman emperor is being worshipped. And Jesus asks his disciples the big question, first of all, who do men say that I am? In other words, is it just equal with one of those niche gods up there on the wall? Is that who I am? Just one of those? And so the disciples give him sort of the, you know, the word on the street, uh, starting at uh, verse 28, and they told him, so it's not just Peter here, the disciples collectively are telling him, John the Baptist, that's the first speculation. Now what, what has happened to John the Baptist by this time? A couple chapters uh, uh, earlier in Mark 6. He's been beheaded uh, for speaking up. He was arrested, remember, for speaking up uh, against the uh, incestuous marriage of uh, Herod uh, to uh, his uh, niece, the daughter of, Herod, of uh, Philip. And he was arrested for that. Remember, his daughter comes in and dances, and he says, uh, I'll give you anything you want, up to half of your kingdom. She must have done a really great job of, with her dance. And what does she, she goes to her mother, and her mother says, ask for what? Ask for the head of John the Baptist. And 
He's already uh, publicly committed to do whatever she asks, and he doesn't back down, and John the Baptist is beheaded. So some are saying that Jesus is whom? John the Baptist come back to life, right? And, of course, through Mary and Elizabeth, they were, Elizabeth was Mary's cousin. So some are speculating out there that, well, this is John the Baptist come back to life somehow, okay? Others are saying, who? The, big, the main prophet, Elijah. Now, uh, a couple weeks ago, we looked at Elijah uh, being, uh, we might say, translated into heaven. Remember how he left in a fiery chariot, right? Now, it's not just because he left in a fiery chariot that some people are saying he is Elijah. If we take a look at, and uh, I don't think we will have the time, but Malachi, if you're taking notes, Malachi 4, verse 6, at the end, almost the very end of the Old Testament, says, Malachi says, that Elijah will return. Okay? Elijah will return. So the people are looking for Elijah to come. In fact, when Christ is on the cross, and he says, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, which is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken uh, me? What do some people mistakenly hear him calling for? Elijah to come, right? So that expectation was there. And in Malachi 3, verse 1, it says, a messenger like Elijah. So who was Elijah? We don't read in the New Testament about Elijah coming before Christ. So who is Elijah, this one who's going to come and prepare the way? John the Baptist. Turn for a moment to uh, Matthew 17. If those of you who have a Bible, Matthew 17. And we'll look at verses 12 and 13. In other words, we're, we're not just speculating about this or saying, well, you know, we can kind of think of John the Baptist as Elijah. Notice in verses 12 and 13, um, Let's go up a little bit further. Let's go to verse 10. And the disciples asked him, this is Matthew 17, starting in verse 10. And the disciples asked him, then why do the scribes say that first Elijah must come? So the scribes were the ones who studied and knew the scriptures very, very well. They knew Malachi 4, 6. They knew Malachi 3, 1. And they are saying that Elijah must come first. And the disciples are saying, well, you know, if this is all true, then why do the scribes insist that Elijah must come first? So the response uh, from Jesus, he answered, Elijah does come, and he will restore all things. But I tell you that Elijah has already come, and they did not recognize him, but did to him whatever they pleased. So also the Son of Man will certainly suffer at their hands. Then the disciples understood that he was speaking to them of John the Baptist. Elijah does come. What's going to come, uh, let's see, it would be uh, from our text for today, three chapters later, when is Elijah going to come? On the Mount of Transfiguration, right? Moses and Elijah, we looked at that a couple weeks ago as well. But Jesus is here saying that Elijah has come. Not only did they not listen to him, but they did to him the same thing they're going to do to whom? To him. So here's yet another prediction that he is going to face death at their hands. Okay? So some said he's John the Baptist come back. Some said he's Elijah because they were, the common uh, understanding was that Elijah is going to come back when all this happens. Okay? 
and uh, others wanted a prophet. So just, just a great prophet, not really anything much more than that. Okay? And now here comes the $64,000 question. And he asked them, but who do you say that I am? And if we were looking at the original language here at the Greek, it starts off with you. Who do you say that I am? Okay? And so the emphasis is here is on you guys. I don't care anymore what other people are saying. Who do you guys say that I am? And maybe just to stop and pause here for a moment. That is the central question, isn't it? Uh, for all people to answer. Who do you say that Jesus is? And we know, of course, that we are not saved by the faith of our parents or our grandparents or our great-grandparents and what they thought about Jesus or who they thought Jesus was. It is, in that sense, a very personal and individual question for each person to answer. Who do you say that I am? And uh, Peter here, as he so often uh, seems to, is going to leap to the response, and this time he, he in a good way, uh, does so. Many times it's, it's not the best, but uh, this time he, he's got it down. Uh, but who do you say? Um, Peter answered him, you are the Christ, and you are the anointed one, in other words. Uh, you are the one who is the anointed one of God, you are the one, uh, we could say, who, who uh, fulfills Isaiah 61. The Spirit of God is upon me. He has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. You are that one. Okay? And so he answers, you might say, he passes the test. And notice there in verse 30, And he, Jesus, strictly charged them to tell no one about him. And that's always a bit of a puzzle, isn't it? We get this in the Gospel of Mark repeatedly, that whenever Jesus is in Jewish territory, although he's got a lot of Gentiles up here in Caesarea Philippi, but especially when he's in Jewish territory, he tells them, don't tell anybody about this. Why would that be? Why wouldn't Jesus say, that's right, Peter, and go out and tell everybody you can find that that's the case? Why would that be? Why do you think Jesus would kind of try to keep this suppressed? at this point. Was that not his time yet? Yes, not his time yet. He is in control of the timetable, right? And, and uh, things are going to progress the way he wants them to progress. And uh, all in good time. All the way through Mark, though, I'll just say this, we could talk about this for quite some time, but all the way through Mark, you get this happening. It's especially in the Gospel of Mark, it seems. And there's this, who is Jesus really, all the way up to the very end of the Gospel of Mark, where at the cross, the centurion, the, who would be a Roman commander of a hundred men, that's why they were called centurions, the centurion, the Roman, at the cross says, surely this was the Son of God. And then it's, that's the question that is answered at the very end of Mark. But all the way through Mark, we're seeing this. The reader gets to see who this Christ is. 
but not a lot of the other people until the end, the very end of the gospel. It's kind of interesting the way it works through, especially in the gospel. It's sometimes, sometimes referred to as the Markan secret or the secret in Mark. Who is Jesus? Okay. Uh, then verse 31. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man, so the Christ is also the Son of Man, must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. Now again, this is the first time in the Gospel of Mark that the disciples are hearing this kind of news. Okay? And he said this plainly, it says, so openly, bluntly. He wasn't talking in a cryptic way here. Openly, bluntly, he's telling them this. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, actually scold him here, or admonish Jesus. Uh, but turning uh, and seeing the disciples, it's interesting. Mark adds this little, this little detail that Jesus turned and saw the disciples. So it's not just what Peter is saying. He not only wants to correct Peter here, and Mark does not have that Peter said, uh, this shall never happen to you. That's in the, other, in the other accounts. This shall never happen to you. It's not just that he wants to correct Peter here, but who does he also want to correct in terms of their thinking? The other disciples. You know, he kind of turns and he sees the others there, and he knows he can't let that understanding stand because it's not correct. And they're not going to be prepared for what's going to happen to him. What do you think the disciples were thinking before Jesus utters these words? What do you think they're thinking he's going to do someday? Take over Jerusalem, perhaps? Uh, who's going to get kicked out? The Romans. Yeah, get rid of the Romans. We'll set up a nice little earthly kingdom here. And uh, remember uh, the mother of James and John? Remember, she had this all figured out too, didn't she? She comes to Jesus and she says... Uh, grant that one of my boys could sit at your right and one at your left when you come in your kingdom, right? She had this all figured out, right? Earthly kingdom, earthly power, earthly prestige, right? And Jesus is trying to break it to them here that, uh-uh, that's not the way it's going to happen. And uh, later on, you know, to Pilate, Jesus will say, my kingdom is not of this world, right? So, going on, Verse 33, but turning and seeing his disciples, he, Jesus, he rebuked Peter. He, he uh, scolded or admonished Peter and said, get behind me, Satan. So, as I said, Peter goes from giving the right answer, you know, getting a gold star, to being addressed as Satan, all in a matter of just a few verses here. This is like a roller coaster uh, ride for him. And uh, when you stop and think about it, let me just finish the sentence first. For you are not setting your mind on the things of God. In other words, you are not thinking of the things of God, but on the things of man. Now, let me just ask you this. How, in this instance, was Peter serving as the mouthpiece for Satan? What is Peter saying, Lord, no, don't go and do that? He's saying, don't go and do what? Die on the cross. Suffer and die on the cross. Don't do that. Well, who doesn't want that to happen? Satan himself. 
You know, when you stop and think about it, there were various points along the way in Jesus' life and ministry, especially his ministry, where you can see Satan trying to thwart Jesus from going to the cross. Do you remember the very first one in the life of Jesus? It's not long after he's born. Remember what happens? Herod orders what? All the male children two years and under uh, in Bethlehem to be killed, right? Now, we don't think that was a lot of kids because Bethlehem was not a, a, you know, a great metropolis back at that time. But still, there's, there's number one, right? And God warns them in a dream and they flee to Egypt, right? To fulfill an Old Testament prophecy out of Egypt if I called my son. Uh, think about the time that Jesus fed the 5,000, which is five loaves of bread and two fish. 5,000 men. We don't know how many women and children were there in addition. And it says right after he was done feeding them, the people came, and what did they want to do with him? Make him a king, an earthly king, right? What a great guy he would be, right? I mean, we've seen him heal all these people. Nobody would be sick anymore. We'd have plenty of food. What a, what a king. Well, what's that a temptation to do? Set yourself up here, what, as an earthly king. Don't go to the cross. Don't suffer. Don't die. You've got this instance right here. Where, where Satan has infiltrated one of the, uh, you know, the, the inner sanctum of Jesus with one of his own disciples mouthing the words, don't go to the cross. And then finally, at the 11th hour, as Jesus hangs on the cross, what are, how is Satan speaking through the people uh, of that time? Come down from the cross, right? If he's the Christ and he can save others, let him save himself and come down from that cross. So even they're verbalizing what Satan wants to have happen, right? Uh, and so maybe uh, one other one I just thought of. Right before this, in the Garden of Gethsemane, on Monday, Thursday evening, when Jesus is about to be arrested, what does Peter do? Jumps up, takes a sword, cuts off the ear of the temple guard Malchus, right? So right at that point, Jesus could say, that's right, let's fight, let's, you know. And in fact, Jesus, after he actually heals the ear of Malchus, you know, says, could I not call on a legion of angels to come? And the answer is yes, he could have, but he did not. So all along the way, and there are other instances too, this is a, like a, almost like a cosmic battle that's taking place as Jesus walks this earth between the mind of God, or the things of God, as Jesus says here, and the things of Satan. And you can see that battle taking place all the way, even on to the cross itself. Okay? Now, what are the things of God? Suffering, dying, rising again. Those are the things of God that Peter should have his mind on. That's what Christ has come to do, okay? But Peter has his mind on the things of man. What, what would be the things of man that Peter has his mind on at this point? What do you think? Earthly kingdom, yeah. Power, authority, prestige, right? Those are the things of man. Those are the things of this earth. And, you know, that Jesus says... Unfortunately, that's what you've got your mind set on. That's what you're focusing on. Not on the things of God. The things I've come to do. Okay? 
Now, we're going to get even a little more personal here. Verse 34. Now notice, he's, he's, oh yes. In a way, was he not Yes, that's an excellent point. Christina makes the point, isn't he in a way here protecting his friend, right? And there's certainly an aspect of that, isn't there? That he has, he was uh, among the first, right, called by Jesus, has been with him this whole time. Uh, and and uh, along with James and John, you know, it's Peter, James, and John that are always in the inner circle whenever something's going to happen. They're the ones on the Mount of Transfiguration and so on. So, yes, in that sense, you could say also he's, he does not want to see this happen to Christ, right? This shall never happen to you. And then he demonstrates that again in the Garden of Gethsemane when he's, he's taking the sword up and they're not going to take you away, right? Right, so there, there's certainly an aspect of that as well. But Jesus, again, lets him know in no uncertain terms that these are not the things of God. These are the things of man, okay? Now, notice in verse 34, we make a transition. Now we're going to talk to the crowd. So this is not just, uh, you know, the disciples by themselves with Jesus, but see, calling the, he calls the crowd over to him now, see? This is not just private class anymore. So he calls the crowd with his disciples. He said to them, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. Three steps. Let's stop for a moment and just think about this. We, we, sometimes we just recite this and it rolls right off our tongue. What does it mean to deny yourself? Deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow me. Okay, deny your life maybe. Get rid of temptations. Okay. Jesus is going to do a parallel coming up here talking about losing our life. So no longer by denying yourself, you no longer are focused upon whom? Yourself, your wants, your needs, your prestige, your power. In other words, the very things that Peter was and the other disciples were focused on. So you deny yourself. You turn away from yourself, right? But it's not just turning away from yourself. Now we talk about taking up your cross. Now, we often use the expression bearing a cross in a very general way. Uh, for example, I, if I have a bad knee, I might say, oh, I guess it's just a cross I have to bear in this life. And that's a legitimate use of the term. It's a common use of the term. But in the Bible, when you're talking about bearing a cross, it's always a hardship that we bear because we are a follower of Jesus Christ. In other words, if we were not a follower of Jesus Christ, we would not have this cross to bear. They could include ridicule uh, being, uh, uh, for the disciples, it's going to include actually punishment and death for all but one of them, all but the disciple John. So when Jesus says, take up your cross here, he's saying very literally, you are going to have to suffer if you follow me. It's a part of the deal. Okay. Now, we could talk today about what crosses, if any, we bear in this world. There, uh, in, in our nation, <coughs> country, our nation, uh, our crosses are pretty mild compared to the crosses that Christians are bearing in other parts of the world. In fact, even their lives uh, uh, laid on the line rather than deny their faith, even today uh, around the world. Unfortunately, we don't hear much about it. But Jesus says, deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow me. 
So there are three things. Be a follower of me. Verse 35. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. So this sounds kind of odd. You lose your life, you save it. You save your life, you lose it. What is Jesus talking about here when he says in verse 35, whoever would save his life? It's, it's the opposite of denying yourself. It's living for yourself, trying to save your own life, right? I'm going to save my, my life, my power, my prestige in a very real sense. You can talk in Bible times especially, whoever would save his life would mean denying Christ, right? Save your life, not, not be martyred, not be killed. That's a very literal translation of that. But we also say it means focusing on self, living for self. Whoever would do that will do what? Will end up losing their life, right? And in a very literal sense, whoever denies him to save his life will end up losing their life, eternally speaking, right? And then the opposite, whoever loses his life, notice there, for my sake, okay? And the Gospels will save it. It will be saved. Just uh, real briefly, too, that word for life all the way through here is the Greek word sike, which is also sometimes translated soul. Okay, so maybe that puts a little different spin on it as well. It's used throughout the scriptures for life, soul, um, even living energy, those, those types of things. But it's, it's probably correctly translated here, life. Okay, now verse 36, for what will it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? See, here it's translated as soul in this, in this uh, verse. So in other words, you want to live for the things of man, Eternally speaking, what's it going to do if you gain the whole world and yet end up forfeiting or losing your soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? It's a rhetorical question, right? The answer is, of course, it's priceless, right? We can't. For, uh, verse 38, for whoever is ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. So this is really a tough thing for the disciples to hear, isn't it? This is the first time that they are hearing full force that following Jesus is not exactly going to be as they might have pictured it going to be. It's going to involve him being uh, uh, crucified, killed, and notice they don't the disciples don't seem to make a lot out of this rise again on the third day. He says it so, so often, and it just they're so fixated on the, uh, being uh, mishandled and, and uh, beaten, suffer many things, and be crucified. It seems like, you know how uh, sometimes it's the case when you get a diagnosis from a doctor and it's, it's, it shocks you that that's all you hear, and everything after that, you, don't, you know, you're not, you're not hearing anymore, and you have to go back and say, now, did you say this, this, and this also? You almost get the impression this is what the disciples were. You know, they heard him say he's going to be killed. And it's, you know, we, we can't overestimate the shock that they must have been in when they heard those words. They were not ready for that at all. And then Jesus goes on to talk about what life is going to be like for a true disciple of his. It's going to have crosses in it, okay? And it means denying self, right? All right. 
And on more than one occasion, unfortunately, they were arguing amongst themselves as to what? Who was the greatest? Yeah. No, that's not the way it's going to be in the kingdom. Christina? Yeah, Christina was saying, uh, did they even believe about the resurrection because they were so shocked on, on, on that day? Yeah, it's hard to know exactly what some of them were thinking. The angel has to tell them to go on to Galilee just like he told you, you know? And uh, so it's, it's hard to say what exactly. And the other thing is we got to remember, that is one of the greatest proofs, isn't it, that he was dead as dead can be. You know, for all these theories that, oh, he just kind of passed out on the cross, and in the cool and dampness of the, of the tomb, he revived and came back. No, they, they knew him to be dead, and, and so that's a great example. But as to what they exactly thought or believed, we don't know for sure. But some, it's, it's interesting, the other thing that is shocking to us, in the first chapter of Acts, I believe it's the first chapter of Acts, or maybe it's the very end of Luke, when they go out to the, to the mountain where he's going to ascend, you know, they worshiped, and then, but it, Luke adds, but some doubted. And that's always bothered me. Some doubted. I think, come on. Yeah, Thomas, yeah, Thomas until the following uh, Sunday night did not believe, did he? All right, well, guess what we've done? <laughs> we've made it virtually impossible to do the, uh, I should say, I have done, I'm sorry, I've done it, uh, made it impossible to do a great section of Scripture here, which is Romans 5. And this is uh, the spot where Paul turns now from the fact that we are justified by grace through faith alone and not by works. In chapter 5 now, he it talks about now, uh, starts a new section with what does this mean for us as we live. And one of my favorite verses in all of the Bible actually is, and this is a good one to kind of keep in mind, is Romans 5, verse 3. Let's just look at that for a second. We've got a minute here. Not only that, Paul says, but we rejoice in our sufferings. Now, is Paul saying here we rejoice because of our sufferings? No. Nobody wishes for more suffering, right? Nobody walks around looking for suffering, at least not that I know of. But in our sufferings, we can still rejoice. Why? Knowing that, as Paul says there, suffering produces or works out endurance. Uh, can also be translated patience. And endurance or patience works out character. That word for character can be uh, means something that is tried and true. In other words, it's come through the fire. It has been tested, you might say. And character produces hope. And that hope is not uncertainty, it's the opposite of despair. It's the opposite of hopelessness. And hope does not put us to shame because God lo God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. And that's a verse that often I will share with people who are hospitalized or in some other uh, condition of, of suffering, uh, physically speaking. And I think it's a great verse of hope and comfort. All right, I have to stop right at this point. And uh, next week we will pick up again with the lessons for the following Sunday. So let's close. May the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be and abide with you all. Amen. Thank you.